these counter-arguments were so compelling, in fact, that the stock market showed a persistent bias in favor of the liberal dividend payers as against the companies that paid no dividends or relatively small ones. One. In the last 20 years the profitable reinvestment theory has been gaining ground. The better the past record of growth, the readier investors and speculators have become to accept a low payout policy. So much is this true that in many cases of growth favorites the dividend rate, or even the absence of any dividend, has seemed to have virtually no effect on the market price. A striking example of this development is found in the history of Texas Instruments, Incorporated. The price of its common stock rose from 5 in 1953 to 256 in 1960, while earnings were advancing from 43 cents to $3.91 per share and while no dividend of any kind was paid. In 1962 cash dividends were initiated, but by that year the earnings had fallen to $2.14 and the price had shown a spectacular drop to a low of 49. Another extreme illustration is provided by Superior Oil. In 1948 the company reported earnings of $35.26 per share, paid $3 in dividends, and sold as high as 235 In 1953 the dividend was reduced to $1, but the high price was 660 In 1957 it paid no dividend at all, and sold at 2000 this unusual escalator declined to 795 in 1962, when it earned $49.50 and paid $7.50. Investment sentiment is far from crystallized in this matter of dividend policy of growth companies. The conflicting views are well illustrated by the cases of two of our very largest corporations, American Telephone and Telegraph and International Business Machines. American Telephone and Telephone came to be regarded as an issue with good growth possibilities, as shown by the fact that in 1961 it sold at 25 times that year's earnings. Nevertheless, the company's cash dividend policy has remained an investment and speculative consideration of first importance, its quotation making an active response to even rumors of an impending increase in the dividend rate. On the other hand, comparatively little attention appears to have been paid to the cash dividend on IBM, which in 1960 yielded only half a percent at the high price of the year and 1.5 percent at the close of 1970. But in both cases stock splits have operated as a potent stock market influence. The market's appraisal of cash dividend policy appears to be developing in the following direction, where prime emphasis is not placed on growth the stock is rated as an income issue, and the dividend rate retains its long-held importance as the prime determinant of market price. At the other extreme, stocks clearly recognized to be in the rapid growth category are valued primarily in terms of the expected growth rate over, say, the next decade and the cash dividend rate is more or less left out of the reckoning. While the above statement may properly describe present tendencies, it is by no means a clear-cut guide to the situation in all common stocks, and perhaps not in the majority of them. For one thing, many companies occupy an intermediate position between growth and non-growth enterprises. It is hard to say how much importance should be ascribed to the growth factor in such cases, 
and the market's view thereof may change radically from year to year. Secondly, there seems to be something paradoxical about requiring the companies showing slower growth to be more liberal with their cash dividends. For these are generally the less prosperous concerns, and in the past the more prosperous the company the greater was the expectation of both liberal and increasing payments. It is our belief that shareholders should demand of their managements either a normal payout of earnings, on the order, say, of two-thirds, or else a clear-cut demonstration that the reinvested profits have produced a satisfactory increase in per share earnings. Such a demonstration could ordinarily be made in the case of a recognized growth company, but in many other cases a low payout is clearly the cause of an average market price that is below fair value, and here the shareholders have every right to inquire and probably to complain. A niggardly policy has often been imposed on a company because its financial position is relatively weak, and it has needed all or most of its earnings, plus depreciation charges, to pay debts and bolster its working capital position. When this is so there is not much the shareholders can say about it, except perhaps to criticize the management for permitting the company to fall into such an unsatisfactory financial position. However, dividends are sometimes held down by relatively unprosperous companies for the declared purpose of expanding the business. We feel that such a policy is illogical on its face, and should require both a complete explanation and a convincing defense before the shareholders should accept it. In terms of the past record there is no reason a priori to believe that the owners will benefit from expansion moves undertaken with their money by a business showing mediocre results and continuing its old management. Stock Dividends and Stock Splits It is important that investors understand the essential difference between a stock dividend, properly so called, and a stock split. The latter represents a restatement of the common stock structure in a typical case by issuing two or three shares for one. The new shares are not related to specific earnings reinvested in a specific past period. Its purpose is to establish a lower market price for the single shares, presumably because such lower price range would be more acceptable to old and new shareholders. A stock split may be carried out by what technically may be called a stock dividend, which involves a transfer of sums from earned surplus to capital account, or else by a change in par value, which does not affect the surplus account. What we should call a proper stock dividend is one that is paid to shareholders to give them a tangible evidence or representation of specific earnings which have been reinvested in the business for their account over some relatively short period in the recent past, say, not more than the two preceding years. It is now approved practice to value such a stock dividend at the approximate value at the time of declaration, and to transfer an amount equal to such value from earned surplus to capital accounts. Thus the amount of a typical stock dividend is relatively small, in most cases not more than 5%. In essence a stock dividend of this sort has the same overall effect as the payment of an equivalent amount of cash out of earnings when accompanied by the sale of additional shares of like total value to the shareholders. However, a straight stock dividend has an important tax advantage over the otherwise equivalent combination of cash dividends with stock subscription rights, which is the almost standard practice for public utility companies. 
The New York Stock Exchange has set the figure of 25% as a practical dividing line between stock splits and stock dividends. Those of 25% or more need not be accompanied by the transfer of their market value from earned surplus to capital, and so forth. Some companies, especially banks, still follow the old practice of declaring any kind of stock dividend they please, for example, one of 10%, not related to recent earnings, and these instances maintain an undesirable confusion in the financial world. We have long been a strong advocate of a systematic and clearly enunciated policy with respect to the payment of cash and stock dividends. Under such a policy, stock dividends are paid periodically to capitalize all or a stated portion of the earnings reinvested in the business. Such a policy, covering 100% of the reinvested earnings, has been followed by Purex, government employees insurance, and perhaps a few others. Stock dividends of all types seem to be disapproved of by most academic writers on the subject. They insist that they are nothing but pieces of paper, that they give the shareholders nothing they did not have before, and that they entail needless expense and inconvenience. On our side we consider this a completely doctrinaire view, which fails to take into account the practical and psychological realities of investment. True, a periodic stock dividend, say of 5%, changes only the form of the owner's investment. He has 105 shares in place of 100, but without the stock dividend the original 100 shares would have represented the same. Ownership interest now embodied in his 105 shares. Nonetheless, the change of form is actually one of real importance and value to him. If he wishes to cash in his share of the reinvested profits he can do so by selling the new certificate sent him, instead of having to break up his original certificate. He can count on receiving the same cash dividend rate on 105 shares as formerly on his 100 shares. A 5% rise in the cash dividend rate without the stock dividend would not be nearly as probable. The advantages of a periodic stock dividend policy are most evident when it is compared with the usual practice of the public utility companies of paying liberal cash dividends and then taking back a good part of this money from the shareholders by selling them additional stock, through subscription rights. As we mentioned above, the shareholders would find themselves in exactly the same position if they received stock dividends in lieu of the popular combination of cash dividends followed by stock subscriptions, except that they would save the income tax otherwise paid on the cash dividends. Those who need or wish the maximum annual cash income, with no additional stock, can get this result by selling their stock dividends in the same way as they sell their subscription rights under present practice. The aggregate amount of income tax that could be saved by substituting stock dividends for the present stock dividends plus subscription rights combination is enormous. We urge that this change be made by the public utilities, despite its adverse effect on the U.S. Treasury, because we are convinced that it is completely inequitable to impose a second, personal, income tax on earnings which are not really received by the shareholders, since the companies take the same money back through sales of stock. Efficient corporations continuously modernize their facilities, their products, their bookkeeping, their management training programs, their employee relations.
It is high time they thought about modernizing their major financial practices, not the least important of which is their dividend policy. Chapter 2-0 Margin of Safety as the Central Concept of Investment In the old legend the wise men finally boiled down the history of mortal affairs into the single phrase, this too will pass. Confronted with a like challenge to distill the secret of sound investment into three words, we venture the motto, margin of safety. This is the thread that runs through all the preceding discussion of investment policy, often explicitly, sometimes in a less direct fashion. Let us try now, briefly, to trace that idea in a connected argument. All experienced investors recognize that the margin of safety concept is essential to the choice of sound bonds and preferred stocks. For example, a railroad should have earned its total fixed charges better than five times, before income tax, taking a period of years, for its bonds to qualify as investment grade issues. This past ability to earn in excess of interest requirements constitutes the margin of safety that is counted on to protect the investor against loss or discomfiture in the event of some future decline in net income. The margin above charges may be stated in other ways. It is said an Eastern monarch once charged his wise men to invent him a sentence, to be ever in view, and which should be true and appropriate in all times and situations. They presented him the words, and this, too, shall pass away. How much it expresses. How chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction. And this, too, shall pass away. And yet let us hope it is not quite true. Abraham Lincoln, addressed to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society, Milwaukee, September 30, 1859, in Abraham Lincoln. Speeches and Writings, 1859-1865, Library of America, 1985, Volume 2, p. 101. For example, in the percentage by which revenues or profits may decline before the balance after interest disappears, but the underlying idea remains the same. The bond investor does not expect future average earnings to work out the same as in the past, if he were sure of that the margin demanded might be small. Nor does he rely to any controlling extent on his judgment as to whether future earnings will be materially better or poorer than in the past, if he did that, he would have to measure his margin in terms of a carefully projected income account, instead of emphasizing the margin shown in the past record. Here the function of the margin of safety is, in essence, that of rendering unnecessary an accurate estimate of the future. If the margin is a large one, then it is enough to assume that future earnings will not fall far below those of the past in order for an investor to feel sufficiently protected against the vicissitudes of time. The margin of safety for bonds may be calculated, alternatively, by comparing the total value of the enterprise with the amount of debt. A similar calculation may be made for a preferred stock issue. If the business owes $10 million and is fairly worth $30 million, there is room for a shrinkage of two-thirds in value, at least theoretically, before the bondholders will suffer loss. The amount of this extra value, or cushion, above the debt may be approximated by using the average market price of the junior stock issues over a period of years. 
Since average stock prices are generally related to average earning power, the margin of enterprise value over debt and the margin of earnings over charges will in most cases yield similar results. So much for the margin of safety concept as applied to fixed value investments. Can it be carried over into the field of common stocks? Yes, but with some necessary modifications. There are instances where a common stock may be considered sound because it enjoys a margin of safety as large as that of a good bond. This will occur, for example, when a company has outstanding only common stock that under depression conditions is selling for less than the amount of bonds that could safely be issued against its property and earning power. That was the position of A. Host of strongly financed industrial companies at the low price levels of 1932 33. In such instances, the investor can obtain the margin of safety associated with a bond, plus all the chances of larger income and principal appreciation inherent in a common stock. The only thing he lacks is the legal power to insist on dividend payments or else, but this is a small drawback as compared with his advantages. Common stocks bought under such circumstances will supply an ideal, though infrequent, combination of safety and profit opportunity. As a quite recent example of this condition, let us mention one small national Presto Industries stock, which sold for a total enterprise value of $43 million in 1972. With its $16 millions of recent earnings before taxes, the company could easily have supported this amount of bonds. In the ordinary common stock, bought for investment under normal conditions, the margin of safety lies in an expected earning power considerably above the going rate for bonds. In former editions we elucidated this point with the following figures. Assume in a typical case that the earning power is 9% on the price and that the bond rate is 4%, then the stock buyer will have an average annual margin of 5% accruing in his favor. Some of the excess is paid to him in the dividend rate, even though spent by him, it enters into his overall investment result. The undistributed balance is reinvested in the business for his account. In many cases such reinvested earnings fail to add commensurately to the earning power and value of his stock. That is why the market has a stubborn habit of valuing earnings dispersed in dividends more generously than the portion retained in the business. But. If the picture is viewed as a whole, there is a reasonably close connection between the growth of corporate surpluses through reinvested earnings and the growth of corporate values. Over a 10-year period the typical excess of stock earning power over bond interest may aggregate 50% of the price paid. This figure is sufficient to provide a very real margin of safety, which, under favorable conditions, will prevent or minimize a loss. If such a margin is present in each of a diversified list of 20 or more stocks, the probability of a favorable result under fairly normal conditions becomes very large. That is why the policy of investing in representative common stocks does not require high qualities of insight and foresight to work out successfully. If the purchases are made at the average level of the market over a span of years, the prices paid should carry with the mazurance of an adequate margin of safety. The danger to investors lies in concentrating their purchases in the upper levels of the market, or in buying non-representative common stocks that carry more than average risk of diminished earning power. As we see it, 
The whole problem of common stock investment under 1972 conditions lies in the fact that in a typical case the earning power is now much less than 9% on the price paid. Let us assume that by concentrating somewhat on the low multiplier issues among the large companies a defensive investor may now acquire equities at 12 times recent earnings, that is, with an earnings return of 8.33% on cost, he may obtain a dividend yield of about 4%, and he will have 4.33% of his cost reinvested in the business for his account. On this basis, the excess of stock earning power over bond interest over a 10-year basis would still be too small to constitute an adequate margin of safety. For that reason we feel that there are real risks now even in a diversified list of sound common stocks. The risks may be fully offset by the profit possibilities of the list, and indeed the investor may have no choice but to incur them, for otherwise he may run an even greater risk of holding only fixed claims payable in steadily depreciating dollars. Nonetheless the investor would do well to recognize, and to accept as philosophically as he can, that the old package of good profit possibilities combined with small ultimate risk is no longer available to him. However, the risk of paying too high a price for good quality stocks, while a real one, is not the chief hazard confronting the average buyer of securities. Observation over many years has taught us that the chief losses to investors come from the purchase of low-quality securities at times of favorable business conditions. The purchasers view the current good earnings as equivalent to earning power and assume that prosperity is synonymous with safety. It is in those years that bonds and preferred stocks of N for all grade can be sold to the public at a price around par, because they carry a little higher income return or a deceptively attractive conversion privilege. It is then, also, that common stocks of obscure companies can be floated at prices far above the tangible investment, on the strength of two or three years of excellent growth. These securities do not offer an adequate margin of safety in any admissible sense of the term. Coverage of interest charges and preferred dividends must be tested over a number of years, including preferably a period of subnormal business such as in 1970-71. The same is ordinarily true of common stock earnings if they are to qualify as indicators of earning power. Thus it follows that most of the fair weather investments, acquired at fair weather prices, are destined to suffer disturbing price declines when the horizon clouds over, and often sooner than that. Nor can the investor count with confidence on an eventual recovery, although this does come about in some proportion of the cases, for he has never had a real safety margin to tide him through adversity. The philosophy of investment in growth stocks parallels in part and in part contravenes the margin of safety principle. The growth stock buyer relies on an expected earning power that is greater than the average shown in the past. Thus he may be said to substitute these expected earnings for the past record in calculating his margin of safety. In investment theory there is no reason why carefully estimated future earnings should be a less reliable guide than the bare record of the past. In fact, security analysis is coming more and more to prefer a competently executed evaluation of the future. Thus the growth stock approach may supply as dependable a margin of safety as is found in the ordinary investment, 
provided the calculation of the future is conservatively made, and provided it shows a satisfactory margin in relation to the price paid. The danger in a growth stock program lies precisely here. For such favored issues the market has a tendency to set prices that will not be adequately protected by a conservative projection of future earnings. It is a basic rule of prudent investment that all estimates, when they differ from past performance, must err at least slightly on the side of understatement, the margin of safety is always dependent on the price paid. It will be large at one price, small at some higher price, non-existent at some still higher price. If, as we suggest, the average market level of most growth stocks is too high to provide an adequate margin of safety for the buyer, then a simple technique of diversified buying in this field may not work out satisfactorily. A special degree of foresight and judgment will be needed, in order that wise individual selections may overcome the hazards inherent in the customary market level of such issues as a whole. The margin of safety idea becomes much more evident when we apply it to the field of undervalued or bargain securities. We have here, by definition, a favorable difference between price on the one hand and indicated or appraised value on the other. That difference is the safety margin. It is available for absorbing the effect of miscalculations or worse than average luck. The buyer of bargain issues places particular emphasis on the ability of the investment to withstand adverse developments. For in most such cases he has no real enthusiasm about the company's prospects. True. If the prospects are definitely bad the investor will prefer to avoid the security no matter how low the price. But the field of undervalued issues is drawn from the many concerns, perhaps a majority of the total, for which the future appears neither distinctly promising nor distinctly unpromising. If these are bought on a bargain basis, even a moderate decline in the earning power need not prevent the investment from showing satisfactory results. The margin of safety will then have served its proper purpose. Theory of Diversification There is a close logical connection between the concept of a safety margin and the principle of diversification. One is correlative with the other. Even with a margin in the investor's favor, an individual security may work out badly. For the margin guarantees only that he has a better chance for profit than for loss, not that loss is impossible. But as the number of such commitments is increased the more certain does it become that the aggregate of the profits will exceed the aggregate of the losses. That is the simple basis of the insurance underwriting business. Diversification is an established tenet of conservative investment. By accepting it so universally, investors are really demonstrating their acceptance of the margin of safety principle, to which diversification is the companion. This point may be made more colorful by a reference to the arithmetic of roulette. If a man bets $1 on a single number, he is paid $35 profit when he wins, but the chances are 37 to 1 that he will lose. He has a negative margin of safety. In his case diversification is foolish. The more numbers he bets on, the smaller his chance of ending with a profit. If he regularly bets $1 on every number, including 0 and 00, he is certain to lose $2 on each turn of the wheel. But suppose the winner received $39 profit instead of $35.
then he would have a small but important margin of safety. Therefore, the more numbers he wages on, the better his chance of gain. And he could be certain of winning $2 on every spin by simply betting $1 each on all the numbers. Incidentally, the two examples given actually describe the respective positions of the player and proprietor of a wheel with 0 and 0. A criterion of investment versus speculation. Since there is no single definition of investment in general acceptance, authorities have the right to define it pretty much as they please. Many of them deny that there is any useful or dependable difference between the concepts of investment and of speculation. We think this skepticism is unnecessary and harmful. It is injurious because it lends encouragement to the innate leaning of many people toward the excitement and hazards of stock market speculation. We suggest that the margin of safety concept may be used to advantage as the touchstone to distinguish an investment operation from a speculative one. Probably most speculators believe they have the odds in their favor when they take their chances, and therefore they may lay claim to a safety margin in their proceedings. Each one has the feeling that the time is propitious for his purchase, or that his skill is superior to the crowds, or that his advisor or system is trustworthy. But such claims are unconvincing. They rest on subjective judgment, unsupported by any body of favorable evidence or any conclusive line of reasoning. We greatly doubt whether the man who stakes money on his view that the market is heading up or down can ever be said to be protected by a margin of safety in any useful sense of the phrase. By contrast, the investor's concept of the margin of safety, as developed earlier in this chapter, rests upon simple and definite arithmetical reasoning from statistical data. We believe, also, that it is well supported by practical investment experience. There is no guarantee that this fundamental quantitative approach will continue to show favorable results under the unknown conditions of the future. But, equally, there is no valid reason for pessimism on this score. Thus, in sum, we say that to have a true investment there must be present a true margin of safety. And a true margin of safety is one that can be demonstrated by figures, by persuasive reasoning, and by reference to a body of actual experience. Extension of the concept of investment. To complete our discussion of the margin of safety principle, we must now make a further distinction between conventional and unconventional investments. Conventional investments are appropriate for the typical portfolio. Under this heading have always come United States government issues and high-grade, dividend-paying common stocks. We have added state and municipal bonds for those who will benefit sufficiently by their tax-exempt features. Also included are first-quality corporate bonds when, as now, they can be bought to yield sufficiently more than United States savings bonds. Unconventional investments are those that are suitable only for the enterprising investor. They cover a wide range. The broadest category is that of undervalued common stocks of secondary companies, which we recommend for purchase when they can be bought at two-thirds or less of their indicated value. Besides these, there is often a wide choice of medium-grade corporate bonds and preferred stocks when they are selling at such depressed prices as to be obtainable also at a considerable discount from their apparent value. 
In these cases the average investor would be inclined to call the securities speculative, because in his mind their lack of a first quality rating is synonymous with a lack of investment merit. It is our argument that a sufficiently low price can turn a security of mediocre quality into a sound investment opportunity, provided that the buyer is informed and experienced and that he practices adequate diversification. For, if the price is low enough to create a substantial margin of safety, the security thereby meets our criterion of investment. Our favorite supporting illustration is taken from the field of real estate bonds. In the 1920s, billions of dollars worth of these issues were sold at par and widely recommended as sound investments. A large proportion had so little margin of value over debt as to be in fact highly speculative in character. In the depression of the 1930s an enormous quantity of these bonds defaulted their interest, and their price collapsed, in some cases below 10 cents on the dollar. At that stage the same advisors who had recommended them at par as safe investments were rejecting them as paper of the most speculative and unattractive type. But as a matter of fact the price depreciation of about 90% made many of these securities exceedingly attractive and reasonably safe, for the true values behind them were four or five times the market quotation. The fact that the purchase of these bonds actually resulted in what is generally called a large speculative profit did not prevent them from having true investment qualities at their low prices. The speculative profit was the purchaser's reward for having made an unusually shrewd investment. They could properly be called investment opportunities, since a careful analysis would have shown that the excess of value over price provided a large margin of safety. Thus the very class of fair-weather investments which we stated above is a chief source of serious loss to naive security buyers is likely to afford many sound profit opportunities to the sophisticated operator who may buy them later at pretty much his own price. The whole field of special situations would come under our definition of investment operations, because the purchase is always predicated on a thoroughgoing analysis that promises a larger realization than the price paid. Again there are risk factors in each individual case, but these are allowed for in the calculations and absorbed in the overall results of a diversified operation. To carry this discussion to a logical extreme, we might suggest that a defensible investment operation could be set up by buying such intangible values as are represented by a group of common stock option warrants selling at historically low prices. This example is intended as somewhat of a shocker. The entire value of these warrants rests on the possibility that the related stocks may someday advance above the option price. At the moment they have no exercisable value. Yet, since all investment rests on reasonable future expectations, it is proper to view these warrants in terms of the mathematical chances that some future bull market will create a large increase in their indicated value and in their price. Such a study might well yield the conclusion that there is much more to be gained in such an operation than to be lost and that the chances of an ultimate profit are much better than those of an ultimate loss. If that is so, there is a safety margin present even in this unprepossessing security form. A sufficiently enterprising investor could then include an option warrant operation in his miscellany of unconventional investments. One. To sum up. Investment is most intelligent when it is most businesslike. 
It is amazing to see how many capable businessmen try to operate in Wall Street with complete disregard of all the sound principles through which they have gained success in their own undertakings. Yet every corporate security may best be viewed, in the first instance, as an ownership interest in, or a claim against, a specific business enterprise. And if a person sets out to make profits from security purchases and sales, he is embarking on a business venture of his own, which must be run in accordance with accepted business principles if it is to have a chance of success. The first and most obvious of these principles is, know what you are doing, know your business. For the investor this means, do not try to make business profits out of securities, that is, returns in excess of normal interest and dividend income. Unless you know as much about security values as you would need to know about the value of merchandise that you propose to manufacture or deal in. A second business principle, do not let anyone else run your business, unless, one, you can supervise his performance with adequate care and comprehension or, two, you have unusually strong reasons for placing implicit confidence in his integrity and ability. For the investor this rule should determine the conditions under which he will permit someone else to decide what is done with his money. A third business principle, do not enter upon an operation, that is, manufacturing or trading in an item, unless a reliable calculation shows that it has a fair chance to yield a reasonable profit. In particular, keep away from ventures in which you have little to gain and much to lose. For the enterprising investor this means that his operations for profit should be based not on optimism but on arithmetic. For every investor it means that when he limits his return to a small figure, as formerly, at least, in a conventional bond or preferred stock, he must demand convincing evidence that he is not risking a substantial part of his principal. A fourth business rule is more positive. Have the courage of your knowledge and experience. If you have formed a conclusion from the facts and if you know your judgment is sound, act on it, even though others may hesitate or differ. You are neither right nor wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. You are right because your data and reasoning are right. Similarly, in the world of securities, courage becomes the supreme virtue after adequate knowledge and attested judgment are at hand. Fortunately for the typical investor, it is by no means necessary for his success that he bring these qualities to bear upon his program, provided he limits his ambition to his capacity and confines his activities within the safe and narrow path of standard, defensive investment. To achieve satisfactory investment results is easier than most people realize, to achieve superior results is harder than it looks. Commentary on Chapter 20 if we fail to anticipate the unforeseen or expect the unexpected in a universe of infinite possibilities, we may find ourselves at the mercy of anyone or anything that cannot be programmed, categorized, or easily referenced. Agent Fox Mulder, The X-Files. F-I-R-S-T-D-O-N-T-L-O-S-C. What is risk? You'll get different answers depending on whom, and when, you ask. In 1999, risk didn't mean losing money, it meant making less money than someone else. What many people feared was bumping into somebody at a barbecue who was getting even richer even quicker by daytrading.com stocks than they were. Then, quite suddenly, 
by 2003 risk had come to mean that the stock market might keep dropping until it wiped out whatever traces of wealth you still had left. While its meaning may seem nearly as fickle and fluctuating as the financial markets themselves, risk has some profound and permanent attributes. The people who take the biggest gambles and make the biggest gains in a bull market are almost always the ones who get hurt the worst in the bear market that inevitably follows. Being right makes speculators even more eager to take extra risk, as their confidence catches fire, and once you lose big money, you then have to gamble even harder just to get back to where you were, like a racetrack or casino gambler who desperately doubles up after every bad bet. Unless you are phenomenally lucky, that's a recipe for disaster. No wonder, when he was asked to sum up everything he had learned in his long career about how to get rich, the legendary financier J.K. Klingenstein of Wertheim and Company answered simply, don't lose. 1. 5% return every year 50% loss in year 1, 10% gain every year thereafter. Imagine that you find a stock that you think can grow at 10% a year even if the market only grows 5% annually. Unfortunately, you are so enthusiastic that you pay too high a price, and the stock loses 50% of its value the first year. Even if the stock then generates double the market's return, it will take you more than 16 years to overtake the market, simply because you paid too much, and lost too much, at the outset. Losing some money is an inevitable part of investing, and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. But, to be an intelligent investor, you must take responsibility for ensuring that you never lose most or all of your money. The Hindu goddess of wealth, Lakshmi, is often portrayed standing on tiptoe, ready to dart away in the blink of an eye. To keep her symbolically in place, some of Lakshmi's devotees will lash her statue down with strips of fabric or nail its feet to the floor. For the intelligent investor, Graham's margin of safety performs the same function, by refusing to pay too much for an investment you minimize the chances that your wealth will ever disappear or suddenly be destroyed? Consider this, over the four quarters ending in December 1999, JDS Uniface Corporation, the fiber optics company, generated $673 million in net sales, on which it lost $313 million. Its tangible assets totaled $1.5 billion. Yet, on March 7, 2000, JDS Uniface's stock hit $153 a share, giving the company a total market value of roughly $143 billion. And then, like most new era stocks, it crashed. Anyone who bought it that day and still clung to it at the end of 2002 faced these prospects. If you had bought JDS Uniface at its peak price of $153.421 on March 7, 2000, and still held it at year-end 2002, when it closed at $2.47, how long would it take you to get back to your purchase price at various annual average rates of return? Even at robust 10% annual rate of return, it will take more than 43 years to break even on this overpriced purchase. T-H-E-R-I-S-K-I-S-N-O-T-I-N-O-U-R-S-T-O-C-K-S, 
B-U-T-I-N-O-U-R-S-E-L-V-E-S. Risk exists in another dimension, inside you. If you overestimate how well you really understand an investment, or overstate your ability to ride out a temporary plunge in prices, it doesn't matter what you own or how the market does. Ultimately, financial risk resides not in what kinds of investments you have, but in what kind of investor you are. If you want to know what risk really is, go to the nearest bathroom and step up to the mirror. That's risk, gazing back at you from the glass. As you look at yourself in the mirror, what should you watch for? The Nobel Prize winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman explains two factors that characterize good decisions. Well calibrated confidence, do I understand this investment as well as I think I do? Correctly anticipated regret, how will I react if my analysis turns out to be wrong? To find out whether your confidence is well calibrated, look in the mirror and ask yourself, what is the likelihood that my analysis is right? Think carefully through these questions. How much experience do I have? What is my track record with similar decisions in the past? What is the typical track record of other people who have tried this in the past? Question mark 3. If I am buying, someone else is selling. How likely is it that I know something that this other person, or company, does not know? If I am selling, someone else is buying. How likely is it that I know something that this other person, or company, does not know? Have I calculated how much this investment needs to go up for me to break even after my taxes and costs of trading? Next, look in the mirror to find out whether you are the kind of person who correctly anticipates your regret. Start by asking, do I fully understand the consequences if my analysis turns out to be wrong? Answer that question by considering these points. If I'm right, I could make a lot of money. But what if I'm wrong? Based on the historical performance of similar investments, how much could I lose? Do I have other investments that will tide me over if this decision turns out to be wrong? Do I already hold stocks, bonds, or funds with a proven record of going up when the kind of investment I'm considering goes down? Am I putting too much of my capital at risk with this new investment? When I tell myself, you have a high tolerance for risk. How do I know? Have I ever lost a lot of money on an investment? How did it feel? Did I buy more, or did I bail out? Am I relying on my willpower alone to prevent me from panicking at the wrong time? Or have I controlled my own behavior in advance by diversifying, signing an investment contract, and dollar cost averaging? You should always remember, in the words of the psychologist Paul Slovic, that risk is brewed from an equal dose of two ingredients, probabilities and consequences. For before you invest, you must ensure that you have realistically assessed your probability of being right and how you will react to the consequences of being wrong. P-A-S-C-A-L-S-W-A-G-E-R The investment philosopher Peter Bernstein has another way of summing this up. He reaches back to Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician and theologian, 1623-1662, who created a thought. Experiment in which an agnostic must gamble on whether or not God exists. 
the ante this person must put up for the wager is his conduct in this life, the ultimate payoff in the gamble is the fate of his soul in the afterlife. In this wager, Pascal asserts, reason cannot decide the probability of God's existence. Either God exists or he does not, and only faith, not reason, can answer that question. But while the probabilities in Pascal's wager are a toss-up, the consequences are perfectly clear and utterly certain. As Bernstein explains. Suppose you act as though God is and, you, lead a life of virtue and abstinence, when in fact there is no God. You will have passed up some goodies in life, but there will be rewards as well. Now suppose you act as though God is not and spend a life of sin, selfishness, and lust when in fact God is. You may have had fun and thrills during the relatively brief duration of your lifetime, but when the day of judgment rolls around you are in big trouble. 5. Concludes Bernstein, in making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, the consequences must dominate the probabilities. We never know the future. Thus, as Graham has reminded you in every chapter of this book, the intelligent investor must focus not just on getting the analysis right. You must also insure against loss if your analysis turns out to be wrong, as even the best analyzers will be at least some of the time. The probability of making at least one mistake at some point in your investing lifetime is virtually 100%, and those odds are entirely out of your control. However, you do have control over the consequences of being wrong. Many investors put essentially all of their money into dot-com stocks in 1999, an online survey of 1,338 Americans by Money Magazine in 1999 found that nearly one-tenth of them had at least 85% of their money in Internet stocks. By ignoring Graham's call for a margin of safety, these people took the wrong side of Pascal's wager. Certain that they knew the probabilities of being right, they did nothing to protect themselves against the consequences of being wrong. Simply by keeping your holdings permanently diversified, and refusing to fling money at Mr. Market's latest, craziest fashions, you can ensure that the consequences of your mistakes will never be catastrophic. No matter what Mr. Market throws at you, you will always be able to say, with a quiet confidence, this, too, shall pass away. The End Thank you for listening to this audiobook.